Amen. Thank you so much. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope and pray that you do. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. You're more than welcome to use that. Uh, and you'll find today's text on page 1057. All right? Um, we've looked at four, the first four letters to four churches of ancient Asia Minor the churches in the city of Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamon, and Thyatira. And today we're going to look at the fifth, of the, the fifth of seven letters to these churches in the city of Sardis. Uh, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is a difficult text. This is not an easy text. This is a text that's going to just really kind of hit all of us right square uh, between the eyes. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, and so as we study through this, just... Just listen carefully to what God's Word says, and listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you through uh, the Word of God, all right? So let's read this text together, uh, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. Jesus uh, instructs the Apostle John to write these words uh, to the church in Sardis. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent if you, uh, if you are not alert. I will come like a thief, and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, let me just remind you of a couple of things as we dive into this text. Uh, the, the churches that we are looking at in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3 were very real churches, much like this church, uh, that existed during the Apostle John's day, during the close of that first century uh, in around just prior to 100 AD, all right? And so these were real churches located in real cities of ancient Asia Minor, populated by real people. Now, why is that important for us today in the year 2023? For this reason, you and I need to be very careful that we don't view these letters as ancient relics or as works of antiquity that applied to somebody some other time in some other place. You and I need to take the principles that we have seen, not only in today's text, but in the previous four letters and in the next two we'll study, we need to take these principles and these truths, and we need to allow them to, to kind of be a, a self-evaluation tool for our own lives individually and the life of this church together corporately. In, in other words... As we look at the strengths and the weaknesses, as we look at the different challenges of these churches, as we look at the different um, successes and failures, if you will, of these churches, we need to see this, number one, on the individual level, and we need to ask ourselves personally, is my life, where is my life in these letters? Where is my walk with Christ in these letters? 
Because here's the reality, within each of the seven letters, you and I can find an aspect or a part of our life uh, that needs sharpening, that, that needs working on. Likewise, they, they're also, they have different strengths and weaknesses, and we can see those strengths even in our own life. And so here's my encouragement to you. As we study through these letters, let them be a, a kind of a personal evaluation tool for you to kind of look at your life and your, your walk of faith and your relationship with Christ and say, where am I in this? All right? That's the first thing. What we have seen is kind of a downward spiral of these churches. Remember the first letter to the church, to the, to the church at Ephesus? What, what was the, the, the problem with that church? They had forgotten their first love. Okay, they had grown to a place where they were loving something else or someone else, whatever it may have been, more than Jesus Christ. Christ commends them for, for their works of faith and other things, but he also says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Then we come to the church at Pergamon. The church at Pergamon was dominated by worldliness. They were loving the things this world offers us more than the things that God offers us. We come to the church at Thyatira. That was a church that was tolerating sin within the body of Christ. They were turning a blind eye to willful and deliberate sin on the part uh, of those who were professing to know Christ as Savior. And now we come to the church at Sardis, and it hits an all-new low. This is a church dominated by sin and unbelief and false doctrine, okay? So much so, what does Christ say? Christ says this was a spiritually dead church. There's nothing good about that at all, nothing, okay? And so you and I, as we study this together, let's, let's really just think through, um, does this apply to me personally? Is this where I am in my walk with Christ or in my relationship with the Lord? I don't know, but let's look at it and see. So we're going to follow the same outline that we've been using for the previous four uh, churches, uh, letters to these churches, and we're going to begin with this. Look with me on your notes. The, the, Lord's, um, uh, the, the Lord's approval of the church at Sardis. Are you ready for this? There isn't one. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus Christ has nothing good to say about this church. Not one thing. Now, I don't know how old this church was at this time. Uh, if Jesus died in A.D. 33, and this is roughly around 100 A.D., uh, the church was founded sometime in between there. L let's just say it's 50 years old. I don't know. For 50 years, they've been meeting regularly. For 50 years, they've been having Bible studies. For 50 years, they've been doing things in the community. For 50 years, they've been praying together, whatever it may be. And Jesus Christ doesn't have anything good to say about this church. And as I was studying that this week, I just felt burdened. I just thought to my mind, you know what? What, what, what if Jesus wrote a letter to our church today? And, and I began to kind of panic thinking, dear Lord, I, I hope he'd have something good to say about us, right? Hey, the landscaping looks good. Something, right? I mean, just give us some kind of... And then I thought... But this church may have thought the same thing, right? And as we're going to see, they, they probably did actually think that. So let's jump into this. Let's see the next point here on our outline. The Lord's accusation against the church at Sardis. 
And we see that in verses 1 through 3. And here's where we begin. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So like the previous four letters, uh, John draws from the names or the descriptors of Christ from chapter 1. And we studied those in detail a few weeks ago. If you didn't hear that message or you want to listen again, you can find it in the library of our, of, of our podcast. And we looked in detail at each name of Christ from chapter 1 and its significance. And so, again, John uh, Christ draws from those names of chapter 1 and says, uh, he says, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, who holds the seven stars. And remember, that is a reference to the elders or the pastors of these churches. And then he says, the one who has the seven spirits. That is not a reference to seven distinct spirits, but it is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God in its completeness and in, in its totality. Uh, most agree it comes from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where we see this messianic prophecy and how the Messiah would be filled by the Holy Spirit. And let me just read to you that verse and kind of understand where it comes from. Here's what we read. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, him being the Messiah, God's chosen one to redeem the world to, back to himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm the one who's full of the Holy Spirit of God. And notice what he says, I know your works. Again, like we've studied in the previous four letters, that language teaches us that Jesus has a, has a full and complete knowledge and understanding of this church. In other words, there's nothing going on in the life of this church that Jesus is unaware of, okay? In his omniscience, he knows everything happening in the life of that church. But let's make it personal, remember? Jesus knows everything going on in your life and in my life. Nothing is hidden from Christ. He knows every thought we think. He knows every word we speak. He knows every action we engage in. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You and I may think we're hiding things from the Lord, or we may hide things from our husband or our wife or our children or our parents or our best friend or whatever it may be, but we can't hide anything from the Lord. He sees all and he knows all about us individually and about us as a church. And notice what he goes on to say, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The church at Sarda, Sardis was very well thought of in the community. I mean, the community thought a lot about this church. But, but remember this, that was a pagan, unbelieving, ungodly culture. So it doesn't say a whole lot that the community thought well of them, okay? Because we can fool the community, but we can't fool the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a dying church. It's a church that's spiritually dead. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible teaches us that spiritual death is always the consequence of sin, okay? What does the Bible say in Ephesians 2 and in Colossians chapter 2 about, about us outside of faith in Christ? What does it say? We are dead in our trespass and sin. In other words, there's no spiritual life outside of faith in Christ. 
So this church was dying, had died spiritually. Why? Because of sin. One commentator described this, the church at Sardis in this way, and I quote, like a museum in which stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. That's a great description of the church at Sardis. They were a spiritually dead church. Sin killed the church at Sardis. Sin will kill our church. Sin will kill the individual as well. Notice what he goes on to say as he continues this. He says, For I have not found your works complete before my God. Uh, the, The church at Sardis was made up of unbelievers and nominal Christians. And nominal Christians going through the motion of religious tradition and spiritual exercises. Uh, This was a church made up of professing believers who were just checking the boxes of religious activity. Worship, check. Life group, check. Gave some money, check. Uh, Went to prayer meeting, check. Whatever it may be, just, just checking boxes. But there was no spiritual life there. There was no reliance on the Holy Spirit. There was no work of God in their life. What does he say to them? That that whatever activities they were engaged in, they looked good in front of the community. The community was impressed by them, but they were found to be insufficient and unacceptable before God. What an indictment. I mean, that ought to get all of our attention, right? That ought to wake all of us up to begin to think in our own mind. Are the activities I'm engaged in insufficient and unacceptable before God? Or are they pleasing to the Lord? I I, want to share with you five signs, five danger signs that a church is dying, okay? And I want you just to think through these in your mind a little bit. Just process them. Here's the first. A church is in danger of dying when it forfeits its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of Almighty God. At any point when we decide, you know what, that particular passage is no longer relevant, or this particular statement's no longer applicable, or that's outdated, okay? Our culture has changed. If there ever becomes a time when we, we, we believe that, that there are parts of God's word that are not from the Lord, we are headed for death. Because all of a sudden, the Bible becomes subjective instead of objective. All of a sudden, it becomes our opinion and our likes and our dislikes determining what God has to say. And friend, that is a certain recipe for spiritual death. Here's the second. A church is in danger of dying when it rests on its past glories. When a church talks more about what happened yesterday instead of focusing on what God wants to do today and tomorrow, it's in danger of dying. A church that is more historical as opposed to forward thinking is on its way to death. Number three, a church is in danger of dying when it focuses on changing the social ills of our society rather than preaching the good news of Christ and allowing God to bring regeneration to people's hearts and minds. In other words, when the social gospel is a greater priority than the gospel of Christ, a church is on its way to dying. Number four, a church is in danger of dying when it focuses on material things 
instead of spiritual things. When the budget and the buildings are more important than making disciples and seeing lives changed, the church is in danger of dying. And then number five, a church is in danger of dying when it is more concerned with man's applause instead of God's approval. When we're more concerned with man's applause instead of God's approval, that's where the church of Sardis had become. The community applauded them for all that they were doing, but the Lord wasn't pleased with it at all. Now, the urgent command we see in verses 2 and 3 that Christ gives this church lies in a series of five action verbs that he, that, that he, that, that he calls them to. And let's look at those real quick. Look with me first uh, in verse 2. Here's what we read. Be alert, or some of our translations say, wake up. Jesus says, church, stop and take some time to, to look around. See, what, see what's happening. Pay close attention. Recognize the reality of what's going on around you. Recognize that, that the Holy Spirit is nowhere to be found in this ministry. And stop what you're doing and be a part of turning this ship around. He says, wake up, be alert. And then he says, strengthen what remains. There is a remnant of hope, and we're going to see that again. There's a remnant of faithful believers who want to see God move mightily, who want to see this mighty movement of God's Holy Spirit. And he encourages those faithful believers, those men and women who love the Lord and are following him. He encourages them to flame uh, just, just, just those, those dying embers of spiritual life. And who knows? Maybe a wildfire happened in the church of Sardis, and maybe they turned things around. We, we don't have record of that. But he encourages those faithful to fan those dying embers of spiritual life. Number three, he says, remember. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. He says, church, think back to when Christ was your first love. Th think back to when the, the praise and the adoration of Christ was the center of everything you did. Think back to when you loved the gospel and you, you believed it with courage and conviction regardless of the cost. Re remember the days when God was moving mightily among us when human logic and human reason couldn't explain all that God was doing. Remember those days, he says to the church at Sardis. Then number four, he says, keep it. Or some of our translations say, obey it. He says, stay true to the gospel. Obey the gospel. Live the gospel. Practice the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. In other words, get back to the gospel, where the gospel is at the center of everything you do. And then finally, the last thing he says for this church to do is this. He says, repent. He says, repent. With brokenness and humility, he says, come before the altar of God. Recognize your sin. Confess it before the Lord and turn from it. That's repentance. Repentance is recognizing the direction we are going is not what God wants for us, and we confess that sin, and we begin to go in the other direction. That's what he says to the church of Sardis. Repent of this sin. Return to me. 
So here's the main point I want you to take away from verses 2 and 3, all right? Look with me in your notes. The spiritually dead who are playing church need to surrender to faith in Christ. The spiritually dead who are playing church need to, need to surrender in faith to Christ. And then secondly, the nominal Christian needs to wake up and repent before it is too late to save the church. Those are the two main points we, we take away from verses 2 and 3, all right? Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 4. I want you to see the Lord's admonition to the church at Sardis. He says this, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. And so in the midst of this spiritually dead church, like I mentioned earlier, there's a remnant of faithful believers a remnant of men and women who are faithfully following the Lord, wanting to see God do a great work. And he describes these faithful believers as, as men and women who have not defiled their clothes or who have not soiled their garments. Now, well, what does that mean? Well, Scripture often uses the picture of clothes or garments to symbolize a person's character, okay? Look with me first from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. Uh, look at this passage of Scripture. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and here's what he says to them. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now look closely at verse 22. He says, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. And so you see this language there. We're told to take off our former way of life and to put on our new self who is in Christ. Uh, let me read to you an additional passage of Scripture where we see this similar language. It's from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read this to you. Writing to Christians in the city of Colossae, Paul says this, So if you have been raised with Christ, that is, if you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So first Paul says, if you are a Christian, then, then we need to be seeking those things where Christ is, those things that are above. In other words, our focus is not on the things of this world, okay? Verse 5, he says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And he says, Christian, you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. In other words, Paul says, as a Christian, these things should not be a part of our life, okay? Okay. Not in any way, shape, or form. These things shouldn't be a part of our life. 
Then he goes on to say, do not lie to one another, and here's the language, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. And so here's the principle in just simple language. As Christians, we are called and commanded to put on the character of Christ, okay, like we would put on clothes and to remove or to take off the nature of our flesh, okay, those, those deceitful desires of our flesh. And so we're to clothe ourselves in Christ, all right? And then Jesus goes on to say, because these faithful followers of Christ had not defiled themselves with sin, they had not soiled their garments in sin, what does he say? That they would walk with me in white. So these faithful followers, this remnant, exhibited godly character, Christ-like character, okay? Now, let me, let me just say this parenthetically, just as a reminder for all of us today, okay? If there is any righteousness, if there is any godliness in our lives, remember, it is the result of Christ's work of redemption in us. It's not because of anything we have done. It's not because of any effort or intellect or charisma or talents or gifts of our own doing. It is all because of the work of Christ. Just as a reminder, in the 64th chapter of Isaiah, we are, remind, we are told this, that all of our righteous acts are like a filthy garment or a polluted garment before a holy and righteous God. In other words, even, even at our very best, what we have to offer God is like a filthy rag outside of Christ. And it's only through Christ and by Christ's grace that you and I have any righteousness or godliness whatsoever. Paul wrote in Romans, if there's anything good about us, it's that Christ lives in us, okay? So we need to be reminded of that. And Jesus goes on to say that they will walk with me in white. What, what does he mean by that? That we'll be dressed in white. Well, we see very similar language uh, referring to Christ and his holy angels. It is a reference to purity and holiness. Look, look with me here from Mark chapter 9. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on the mountain, and they, they experience the, 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 the glory and the majesty of Christ in all his fullness. Look what we read here. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. For those few brief moments, however long it was, Peter, James, and John got to see the, got to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his righteousness, in all of his holiness in such a way. The best language they could offer us is that it, it, it was a white like no white they'd ever seen. We see the same thing with his holy angels. Look with me in Mark 16 and verse 5. On that morning of the resurrection, when those disciples ran to the empty tomb, here's what we read. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And so the holy angels are dressed 
in white. What is, it, what is that again a reference to? It's a reference to the purity and the holiness of Christ. And so here's what I want you to just to understand from, from verse 4. Look with me in your notes. Followers of Christ who have a measure of holiness and purity in this life, again, as a result of what Christ has done in us, will be given perfect holiness and perfect purity when we enter the presence of our Savior. We'll be dressed and clothed in white, all right? So now let's look at verses 5 and 6 and kind of pull everything together here. Jesus says, In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the church. Again, Jesus transitions to speak uh, to the individual Christian like, he'd has, has, like he's done in the previous four letters. He says, the one who conquers, or in some of the previous letters, the one who overcomes. And remember, that is a reference to believers from 1 John uh, chap- chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Let me just remind you of what that says. Because everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so who is the one who overcomes? It is the one who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and we're promised two things here. We're promised, number one, we'll be dressed in white clothes, and we looked at that in detail just a moment ago in verse 4. And secondly, we're promised eternal security. Look at what he says there. I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his holy angels. What is the book of life? We're going to look at the book of life in, in, in significantly more detail as we get further along in Revelation. But just to kind of whet your appetite, the book of life is a divine ledger kept in heaven that has the names of every individual who historically has placed their faith in God's provision of salvation or who will place their faith in God's provision of salvation. And notice what we read here, that Christ won't erase that name from the book of life. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27. Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, our ultimate eternal home, here's what we read. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, who will spend eternity with Christ? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Likewise, on the negative, look with me at Revelation 20 and verse 15. Because here's what else we read. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so for us, here's the, the, the great promise that Christ gives us. If you are here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe that he is God's one and only son, you believe he came to this earth and veiled his glory in human flesh, he died on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose from the dead and is alive today. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and the certainty of eternal life, listen carefully. Are you ready? 
Your name is forever written in the permanent blood of Jesus Christ in the Lamb's book of life and can never be removed. It is that you are eternally secure in Christ. But then Jesus goes on and gives us a further promise. Notice what else he says. But I will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his holy angels. All those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus will acknowledge before the Father. In Matthew 10, long before the occasion of this letter to the church of Sardis, look with me at what Jesus said to us. He says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others... I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Here it is. Are you ready? For all those who say yes to Jesus Christ in this life, who place their faith and trust in him, who acknowledge him to be their Savior and the Savior of the world, Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But likewise, if you reject me in this life, if you refuse to surrender in faith to me, then I will refuse to acknowledge you before the Father in heaven. What is the significance of that? Are you ready for me? Ready for this? It is a reminder today that Jesus Christ is the only way unto heaven. He is the exclusive way into the presence of God for all of eternity. There is no other path that will take you into God's presence for all of eternity. It is only through Jesus Christ, for salvation is found in no one else. He is the only name given under heaven to to men by which we must be saved. And this is a promise to believers. This is a promise to followers of Christ. So here's what I want you to take away this morning. Look with me in your notes. The faithful believer can take comfort in the knowledge that their salvation is eternally secure in Christ. Again, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done through us in redemption and in salvation. This is a hard six verses. It's difficult, but it's nonetheless true. So here's my prayer for you. Number one, I pray and hope that that all of you have made a decision to say yes to Jesus Christ and surrender to him in faith. If not, Why not? Why not today? Why not say yes to Christ today? Why not give your heart and life to Christ today and let Christ begin to transform you into the man or the woman that he created you to be? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you um, for all that you are doing and how you're working. I want to thank you, Lord God, for the families who have made a commitment to train and to raise their children in the in the instruction of your scripture and under your leadership. I want to thank you for Carmen and Gus who publicly declared their personal faith in you today through baptism. And Lord God, I just thank you for how you're moving and working among us. And Lord, I ask and pray that you can continue to mold us, continue to shape us, continue to fashion us into the men and women you created us to be, the men and women you have gifted us to be, the men and women you've redeemed us to be as your children as your ambassadors to the nations, Father God. We ask you, Lord, we invite you, we implore you, we beg you to continue to work, Lord, to move in hearts and lives like only you can for your glory and for your honor. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.